So there is, you know, there are two long sermons of Jesus found in scripture. Most of them were short, short sermons, but two, two of his sermons were long means relative to the short sermons he spoke, not compared to sermons today. One is at the Last Supper, chapter John 14, 15, 16, very long sermon and a long prayer in chapter 17. And the other is what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4, 5, and 6, which is another long sermon. Those are the two long sermons of Jesus in the scriptures. So I want to look at the first one, Matthew 4, 5, and 6, because the reason I say that is because at the end of that sermon, Jesus took three word pictures. <clears throat> and the three word pictures were in relation to the sermon. One was a picture of two waves. The other was a picture of two trees. And the other was a picture of two houses. Just two. There were not three, not three ways, not three trees or three houses, only two. And uh, those three illustrations were related to what he had spoken in chapter 4, 5, and 6. Then you can say that was the concluding statement of the Sermon on the Mount. So, <clears throat> the first thing that Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount was in the, the Sermon on the Mount, you can say the whole text of it finishes in chapter 7, verse 12, and then comes the three illustrations. And the first illustration is enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, many enter through it. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. See, uh, in that, he was, what he was actually saying is, what I have spoken to you just now is a very narrow way. The broad way is just a lot of Bible knowledge, go to meetings, say that I have accepted Jesus in my heart, live for yourself, and uh, let others consider you a good believer. And drift along, <clears throat> don't do anything seriously wrong, keep the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, pay your taxes, and keep a good external life. But this way that Jesus described here is very narrow. For example, he said, the Old Covenant was a sort of a broad way. Don't commit murder. Lots of, do you know there are millions of people who walk that road who never commit murder in their whole life? Many Hindus and atheists I know who never once in their life committed murder. It's not a very narrow way that very few people find. But when he spoke about this in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, he said, the way I'm telling you is not this broad way where don't commit murder. It's easy. You know, it's like a such a broad lane that your car can weave this way, that way, and all that still be in the lane. But this one is so narrow that you can't even go one inch this way or that way. 
you must not get angry. That's a pretty narrow way. That's what he said in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 32. Here's the broad way. Don't commit murder. It was good that they had that law because it made them different from all the other people in the world. Because those days standards were so bad. See, today, because almost every country in the world accepts murder as a crime, because we are living after the Ten Commandments and almost all the countries in the world, have, whether they like it or not, they have accepted the Ten Commandments as the basis for the law. At least most of the Ten Commandments. Don't commit murder. But now I'm saying, don't get angry because that is murder in the heart. What was outside, he brought it inside. So what we learn there is, as long as, listen to this, as long as you're only concerned about your external testimony before people, unknowingly you will be walking the broad way. It's when you begin to be concerned about what God thinks about you in your private life and in your heart that you switch from the broad way to the narrow way. I want to tell you, very few Christians choose it. The way is narrow. Very few people want to go that way. Because, like somebody said, most people live by the 11th commandment, which is, thou shalt not get caught. That's all. Whatever you do, don't get caught. Many Christians live by live like that. Don't get caught. If you don't get caught by others in the church, you're okay. So, that's one. Then Jesus said, I'll give you another example. Um, here is a big Broadway, verse 20, Matthew 5, 27. You shall not commit adultery. Do you know there are millions of people, believe it or not, who never commit adultery in their whole lives. There are thousands of faithful husbands who never commit adultery, non-Christians. I know non-Christian atheists, and uh, men who have never committed adultery even once in their life were faithful to their wives. It's not a very narrow way. And it's not only Christians who are dominant. But Jesus made it so narrow. He said, if you, if that adultery is in your heart, you look at a woman and you lust after her, she doesn't even know what you're doing. You lust after her. You sin. Boy, isn't that a narrow way? How many people are walking that way? Few there be that find it. Jesus said, this way that I have spoken is very, very narrow. You can go through the list like that. He talks about people who permit divorce. I'm not talking about people who are unfortunately divorced in their ignorant days of ignorance. You know, in the days when they were in a Babylonian Christianity. I'm talking about people who uh, live in a system like there is in America today where pastors can be divorced and people can be divorced and still be a good member of the church. It's a really broad way. Anybody can get in there. You can believe almost anything you like. You can be homosexual or still be in the church. And like, I don't understand it. It's a broad way. There are many people going like There's a tremendous pressure on Christianity today around the world. Don't make it so narrow. Don't be so narrow-minded. Some people have 
Suddenly don't be so narrow-minded. Uh, even the non-Christians say, why do you say Christ is the only way? Why don't we be a little more broad-minded and say there are other ways also to God? And Christians also may say, why do you say only... You know, people have asked me this many times, why, Brother Zach, you speak so much against anger and sexually dirty thoughts? I said, I'll tell you why. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about hell only twice. Jesus spoke about hell only twice. And he said that it's those who get angry and who lust up in their heart who go to hell. Did you read that? It's written there. You read sometime when you get time, Matthew 22, where it says you can be guilty to go to hell. And verse 29 and 30 says about guilty to go to hell. Only two sins. Anger and sexually dirty ways of thinking. That's a really narrow way, but it, and it's not preached. I'll tell you it's not preached. I mean, in almost every Christian denomination I've heard that preaching, it is not preached. And most people say, no, 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 it's not so serious. Make the gate a little broader, make the way a little broader. Fine, you can do what you like in answer to God one day. And like that, he went to other things. For example, verse 33, Broadway is when you have put your hand on a Bible, make a vow in a court, don't tell lies. I think there are lots of people who never tell lies in court when they are taking a vow or stand before a judge and say, I swear, and they'll speak the truth. But Jesus said, no, you must speak the truth all the time. Not only when you are swearing in a court. Because the Old Testament law said in verse 33, uh, don't make a false vow. But I am saying, don't even tell a lie. Your yes must be yes, verse 37, your no must be no. Anything other than that is evil. That's a pretty narrow way. And everything else like that which he said in the Old Testament, the law was if somebody knocks out one eye of yours, knock out one eye. What he meant was don't knock out both his eyes, just knock out only one. That's what he meant. But they twisted it to mean that if they took out my eye, I can take out his eye. He knocks out one tooth of mine, I can knock out one tooth of his. But Jesus said, no, don't do that. If somebody slaps you in one check, just ignore it and show the other cheek. Everything that he said there is very is a very Narrow way. The Old Testament law said, verse 23, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's pretty easy. Is it difficult for any of you to love your good neighbor and hate your enemy? Not at all. Jesus said, I'm going to make the way narrow. You must love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and bless those who curse you, etc. So, what you see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus making the way very narrow. I want to tell you what's happened. In the last 2,000 years, Christian preachers have made it broad once again. You can hardly find a church today that preaches some of these things which I'm just saying. That anger can lead you to hell or sexually dirty thoughts patterns can lead you to hell. Have you heard it? I mean, I've listened to messages for more than 50 years. You go to the internet nowadays, you get a variety of sermons preached by everything, all the way from Catholic to Pentecostal. I don't know if there are any other preaching. Each denomination thinks it's better than the other one. That says I'm better than this. I preach more than I preach water baptism. I preach baptism of the Holy Spirit. But when you come to the narrow way, hardly anybody's preaching it. Why is that? They distinguish themselves by external rituals. Oh, we don't pray to Mary. Okay, we're not Catholic. Or we don't baptize children. They're a little better. Or we believe in speaking in tongues. All these things, you can have the most carnal people in the world doing all these things. Not even born again, 
I've seen, heard demon possessed people speaking in tongues. You don't have to be filled with the Holy Spirit for that. And so many unconverted people have taken water baptism because they belong in a church that preaches that. But the standard preached in the Sermon on the Mount, I hardly found any of these denominations, and I've been in a number of them preaching it. What shall I say? What a work the devil has done in Christendom. This is where we need many new covenant churches who preach the narrow way, where you go and what you hear is the standard of this way. Because otherwise, the blood of those people is in the hands of the preacher. I often say, I tell people, I don't care whether you think I'm very strict. I remember one brother came to our church years ago in Bangalore and uh, he went and told some of the other brothers this brother Sachs preaching is so hard and so strict. So I heard about it and I called him and I put my arm around him and said, Brother, I love you. I'm not disturbed that you said that because you don't understand the seriousness of scripture. You come from a non-Christian background, so I don't blame you. But I'll tell you one thing. When you see what is going to happen in the day of judgment, to all these people who sat in so-called born-again churches and you see their eternal fate, you will, that day you will thank me for what I preached to you. Even if you think it's very hard today. And that's enough for me. I don't want anybody to thank me today. I said, that day you will turn around and thank me. Say, Brother Zach, thank you for teaching us the truth. And that's enough for me. So, it's because numbers will decrease that pastors and preachers don't preach the narrow way. See what happened, Jesus said, in that illustration, word picture, he the way is narrow. And very few find it, verse 14. Who wants a church with very few people? The broad way, many enter through it, verse 13. It's called a mega church. There are many mega churches in the world, in India also, 30,000 people. You go to any of those mega churches, listen to their messages for 52 Sundays, and tell me if one of them will preach the things written in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They will not. They will only preach, pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father, God in heaven. And that also they don't teach fully, because one sentence in that Lord's Prayer is, Forgive us as we forgive others. I won't emphasize that. If you don't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. So you see, we are living in a day of tremendous compromise. And all because they want many. To, to tell you honestly, I'm scared when numbers increase in our church. In Bangalore, for example, you see what's happening in Bangalore now is God has given us a bigger place, more comfortable. This place outside for the children to play. That's an attraction. We offer a free lunch every Sunday. Mainly because only people come from so far away and many of them don't have cars. So we do that free lunch. And we don't take an offering. There's no membership fee. It's very attractive, humanly speaking, to be in such a church. And many of them draw leave other churches where the pastors are always saying, give me your money, give me your money, give me your money, how much have you given? And I'm getting scared. Because I say, Lord, these people are not coming to be disciples. 
you're coming because there are so many other advantages from a human level. And so it's a battle to keep, even if we preach this way, to ensure that these people take it seriously. It is a real battle to build a church where everybody is walking this narrow way. I don't think there's a church on the face of the earth where every single person sitting there is walking this narrow way. Certainly not in our CFC churches. But we preach it. So I told the elders in our churches, you can never build a perfect church. That is impossible. Even Jesus' church had one crook sitting there. Judas is carrying. So there will always be, and we're not as good as Jesus, there will be certain people, the devil will send people there to define it. But we have to make sure that the leadership of the church is strong, walking the narrow way and preaching the narrow way. We have to make sure that the preaching in the church is always about the narrow way. And then, like Paul said, your blood is not on my hands. That's what he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. I preached you the whole truth of God. Now your blood is not on my hands. You may not go this way. In fact, he told those elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. After I go, wolves will come into your church. Turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. He said that he called the elders of Ephesus together. And in verse 17, Acts 27. I don't know how many there were. I mean, there can't be. Maybe more than four or five elders. Four or five elders from the best church of the first century, the church in Ephesus. And you know how long Paul was there? Three years, verse 31. Remember that for three years, every day and every night, I preached to you. He used to go from house to house, early morning meeting, six o'clock before you go to work, you'll have a meeting. Every day, night meeting after you come back from work. John Wesley, in England is to do that. He used to go out to preach at 5 o'clock in the morning to the workers before they went to work. There were people together. There was revival in those days. Imagine people before going to work, early morning, getting up and coming to hear John Wesley at 6 o'clock in the morning, listening to the message and then going to work. And then after the work was over, coming back in the evening. Boy, they were really wholehearted. It was a powerful movement, the Methodist movement in the early days in the 18th century. So Paul did this here. Three years, night and day, I, with tears, boy, he was a man of compassion. You think of Paul as a very hard man, the all history standard, but there were tears in his eyes many times. Tears for what? Concerned that some of these people are not taking things seriously. But anyway, he told them, verse 26, I want to say today, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have declared the whole purpose of God to you. I've shown you the narrow way, and your blood is not on my hands. That's the only man who can say the blood is not on his hands, who's proclaimed the narrow way clearly. Then he said, But I know. See, I have not only proclaimed this to you, I've been an example to you. Verse 33 I never wanted anybody's money. I didn't want anybody to give me a new shirt or trousers or any such thing. I didn't want any of this from you. And you know how I supported myself, verse 34 and taught you to 
follow Jesus' example of better to give than to receive. With all that example and the powerful preaching that he preached for three years, he tells them, but in spite of all this, I know, verse 29, that after I leave this place, and I'm going to leave this place tomorrow, and that is the last day, I'm leaving this place tomorrow, and I know that after I go, the wolves who are just waiting outside, just waiting outside the door for Paul to go, they'll come rushing in. They couldn't come in during the three years Paul was there. He said, Boy, we can't go in this moment. Paul is such a strict doorkeeper that he'll finish us off. But he's not going to be around forever. He's going to go. That'll be on time. But these others, these elders, we can knock them off one by one. They seek honor and uh, their reputation and things like that. They're not going to be as strict as Paul. And we'll be able to walk right in. And so Paul warned them. He was a prophet. He said in verse 29, after my departure, savage wolves will come in and they will not spare the flock. Some of you elders may escape, but the flock will be destroyed because you guys are not as strict as I have been. And uh, not only that, when this happens, these wolves will not only destroy the flock, they will come into the midst of you elders and on some silly matter bring a division between you and that unity that you once had when I was here is gone and you will start trying to get certain people on your side and this other brother will try to get certain people on his side try to, it'll be like politics inside the church and people who, elders will try to get some people to support them in some decision and like that and ultimately you will say oh we can't stay on like this anymore make your own little group and go off and you know that happened in uh, Revelation chapter 2, you read what I call the second letter to the Ephesians. The first letter was written by Paul, the second letter was written by John, Revelation chapter 2, where the Lord tells this church and to the elders of this church, Once upon a time you loved me, the Lord says, with all your heart that has gone. You have left your first love. You are still doing the same things, you still have your meetings, you still have your conferences, you still have your special times and all that, but the old love for me is gone. The fervent love that you all had in the days when Paul was here is gone. So I want to say to you that we are living in those days, we are approaching those days when coming of the Lord is near. And one of the things that's going to happen is preachers are going to make the narrow way broader, broader, broader. Be very, very careful. There are people who say, why are you so particular about just listening to this type of truth all the time. There are people who say, oh, Zach is like a cult leader. So you can say what you like. I have a commission from God to proclaim the entire purpose of God. And I don't care whether people call me a cult leader or a heretic or a separatist or anything you like. When I stand before God, I want to be able to say, Lord, I did what you told me to do. I taught what you told me to teach. So, be very careful, that's all I say. If you find people preaching this narrow way, by all means listen to them. I don't believe I'm the only person on earth preaching it. There could be, some may not be so well known, 
But if you find somebody preaching it, by all means listen to them. Somebody who will stir you, perhaps stir you more than I stir you, to walk this narrow way. Go and listen to that person anywhere. But don't listen to people who make the way broader in the false type of thoughts that the devil can bring into your mind. We must be more broad-minded. We must not listen to just one type of teaching. What about this brother also gives good messages and that man is a great man of God, respected everybody. Oh, that's great, brother. I'm not against that. I only ask one question. Is he proclaiming the narrow way? That's what I want to know. I'm not proclaiming whether he believes in the Trinity and whether I believe Jesus is the only Savior of the world, whether he believes in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, 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 you can believe in all that. The statement of faith that many Christian churches have, even the devil can sign it. What is there the devil doesn't believe? The devil believes in the Trinity. He believes that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. He believes God is a loving Father. He believes that Christ died and rose again. Christ is coming back. Which is the truth is the devil doesn't believe. He can sign any doctrinal statement of any church. But the devil won't preach the narrow way. So I'm not interested in just somebody who believes in these theological statements. That's important. I'm not against it. But I say the narrow way. Preaching in the narrow way is so rare in our day. So we don't say we are exclusive in the Holy Church. We're not like the Pharisees. Oh, thank God we are not like others. We never pray that prayer. I pray there will be a million churches like ours around the world. But I say we are not going to compromise on the narrow way. Because the life of many people is in our hands. We are not playing with money. can afford to lose money, but I can't afford personally to lose one soul that comes to the CFC Church. That's my responsibility. If one soul anywhere in any of our many CFC churches comes and does not hear the truth from me, I'm answerable to God. If he rejects after hearing it, that's not my business. So therefore, I take it very seriously. So, I thank God for a church like this where I can preach the whole counsel of God. In some other churches that I go to in different places, people are not ready to hear all that I preach. So we just slowly guide them, you know. It's like in the kindergarten you can only teach ABC. And then you got to lead them further and teach them BAT is bad and CAT is bad and then lead them further to read. So it's like that Christian churches are like this. But we need many churches which strongly proclaim the narrow way every single Sunday in one form or the other. Because it's only then that we can be fruitful, bring forth fruit for the glory of God. The second picture here that Jesus gave is of two trees. He said in Matthew 7 and verse 15 to 20, he said the test of a tree is the fruit. Not how big it is. Again, the point is not how big it is. Not how big a tree, how many branches. Is the fruit good? Not even how many fruit. Thousand fruit on this tree. Doesn't matter. Is it good fruit or bad fruit? If it is bad fruit, verse 17, Thousand apples there, all of them rotten, cut it down. And here's a good tree, maybe only five or ten apples. Again, the emphasis is not number of fruit, but quality of fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. 
every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. We've got to cut down trees that don't bear good fruit, Jesus said. There's no point maintaining a church which is not producing good fruit. Cut it down, throw it away. Plant another one. I believe in that. I've gone to so many places in India where I saw so many trees with bad fruit. I said, well, honey, no, let's plant a new tree here with good fruit, preaching the whole counsel of God. Of course, a lot of people will hate you like they hated me for doing it, but we're not afraid. Because we want a tree that is producing good fruit. That tree has to be watched. And you know, like Jesus said, the gardener watches it, prunes it, cuts it down so that it produces more fruit. So that's the other picture. All that Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus said, is the way to become a good tree. And for that, you have to lay the axe to the root of anything that's bad. If there's a habit that you've got in your life, which is growing up to be bad, cut it at the root. If you find a habit that your children are picking up, which is not a good thing, some association with some people that's affecting the way your children are growing up, or some particular habit, or some particular program that they watch, or which they see on their iPad or TV, which is, you find it's affecting them in a bad way, never mind how painful it is, put the axe to the root. We have to save our children to be a witness for the Lord in the next generation. Put the axe to the root, it's painful, but in the long run we'll have some good fruit coming out of it. We need wisdom here. And uh, you know how to apply it in your own life. And the third picture Jesus gave was of two houses, verse 24 to 27. I don't need to spend as much time as I did on the Maraway and Airway and Broadway and all these other issues because basically they're all teaching the same thing. That's why. So in verse 24 to 27, he talks about two houses one built on the rock and the other built on sand. And the thing is, who is this one who builds on sand? He's a person who comes to every Sunday meeting. That's the point. Because it says in verse 26, he hears these words of mine. Where does he hear these words of mine? Not in a mosque or a temple or sitting at home watching television. He comes to a church which is preaching the word of God, the words of Jesus. Even the Sermon on the Mount, these, he hears these words of mine. Point. The church where they read out the Sermon on the Mount, but the man never obeys them because the preacher is not emphasizing obedience. He's emphasizing believe, believe, brother, you believe. He does not obey them. That was his only mistake. Verse twenty-six. He built on the sand. So he's not an atheist. He's a man who comes regularly every Sunday to hear, 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 hear. The only thing he does, he doesn't obey it when he goes home. He doesn't take seriously the things that Jesus spoke about here. And he goes on sand. The interesting thing is that for a long time that house remains. And it looks as if this man who's not obeying the Sermon on the Mount looks similar to this other guy who's being so careful to obey every verse. Both houses look the same. In fact, the other guy's house looks bigger. But one day the rain and the flood and the winds come. Verse 27 and that house collapses. Gone. 
Because when the test of God comes, it's not testing how beautiful the building is, it's testing the foundation. The foundation is, did you obey? So that's what we read in verse 24. The one who built on the rock is one who heard and obeyed. Nothing could shake it. The little testings in life that come are tests to show whether your house can stand or not. You know those little temptations you men that can come to you to lust sexually, whether it's the pornographic site or magazine or billboards or some very immodestly dressed women walking down the roads. That's a wind that's come, a rain that's come, a wind to test your building. Thank God for those winds because there you decide, you know there you decide, there you discover whether you're a solid uh, foundation or not. And if you find in such situations that you fell, it's a warning from God, wake up, wake up. Your foundation is not solid, repent. Go and seek God, fast a little and seek God to be free from that. Or you sisters, you found in some little situation, so easily you got angry and upset and started grumbling and complaining. But some little storm came. It's a warning from God. Wake up, wake up. Don't get so upset over some things that have no eternal value. It's very easy in a home to get upset over something that has no eternal value. We are all tempted. I can be tempted when I ask myself this question, does this have any eternal value? If it has eternal value, I have to take it seriously. If it doesn't have eternal value, forget it. I'm not, I refuse to get upset. I refuse to murmur. I refuse to grumble because this has no eternal value. Very important. Now I want you to compare this, you know, when I read this first in Matthew 7, I thought that a wise man chose a rocky area and the foolish man chose a sandy area. But then when I compared scripture with scripture, it's a wonderful thing to compare scripture with scripture when you see the truth. You go to Luke chapter 6 and you find it was not like that. They built next door to each other. Both built on a sandy surface next door to each other in the same area. The only difference was the wise man, verse Luke 6, 48, Verse 47, who hears my words and acts on them, he's like a man, Luke 6, 48. He dug deep. That's the point. It's not that he chose a rocky area. He took the trouble to dig. No, still sand, still sand. Ten feet, still sand, still sand, still sand. Okay. And say, brother, how long, how deep are you going to dig? No, I, until I hit rock, I don't care how deep it is. I dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And while that fellow's house is already coming up, because he's laid the foundation and there's the first floor. This chap is still digging the, for the foundation. And in the eyes of the world, he's a fool. What a lot of money you're wasting and digging, building quickly. Look at that fellow. Look at how his church has come up so soon and you're still struggling with foundation. Dig deep, dig deep, dig deep. And finally, when he hit rock, even then he had to blast that rock. He put in dynamite or whatever they had in those days. Blast it and hit it and hammer it and 
dig and break up that and dig a hole into that rock to lay a foundation. What a lot of money, effort, time. At the end of it, he spent so much that he can only build a small house. But with the same amount of money, that fellow built almost a skyscraper. But this guy spent so much time and effort and money in laying the foundation. He dug deep. He looked a fool because he took longer, he spent more than the other guy. But when the test came, that house collapsed, this house stood. <clears throat> there is a day when the test will come for all of us. And it says among believers, among believers, there will be two groups. Every Christian church preaches that there will be unbelievers and believers. Okay. Let me show you from scripture how there will be two groups among believers. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> Little children, he's talking to believers, verse 28. Little children, John is talking to born again believers. Who verse 1, who's advocate is Jesus Christ of righteous, 1 John 2 1. To those same little children, at the end of the chapter, he says, Abide in Christ. We know from John 15 that also means abide in his word. So that when he appears, listen to this, when Jesus returns, among believers, there will be two groups. Have you heard that? One, those who have confidence, yay, the Lord has come, Lord, I'm ready to meet you, hallelujah. And another group of believers, little children, who shrink away from him in shame. They want to disappear. <gasps> the Lord has come. They're not ready. They haven't forgiven somebody. They still got some bitterness against someone. They haven't gone and asked that apology that they should ask for. They've made no effort to clear that debt, that long-standing debt. They made no effort to clear. They're left hanging on with somebody else's money, which they got in order to raise their standard of living. <clears throat> Shrink away. Little children, little children, which group will you be in? Will you be in those who have confidence or those who shrink away in shame? It's similar to the wise man and the foolish man, the day of judgment, one house stands, the other house doesn't stand. The way narrow way in the broad way. Let me recommend to you, my dear brothers and sisters, to meditate on Matthew 5, 6, and 7. When we started our church in <coughs> Bangalore in 1975, we spent many months, months on Luke 14, 25 to 34, the three conditions of discipleship. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That is our main study in those days. Then we followed on from there to Hebrews 6. That is, lay us, lay this repentance, faith, what a baptism, coming of the Lord, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's lay that aside and press on to perfection. 
<clears throat> that's how we laid the foundation in our church and we don't regret it now after 40 years. And we still try to build on that foundation. A whole lot of people hang around but are not really serious. We can't do anything about that. We hope that they will come seriously. See, we don't turn away people who come to our church because we hope maybe they'll sit and listen to us for six months and become serious. They're willing to wait. We don't say, hey, you're not serious today. You came today and say, you're not serious. Go away. No. We give them a time. We give time for our children who grow up and they're not serious in the beginning. Children growing up in the church and say, okay, by the time they're 80, 90, 20, maybe they'll be gripped. So we want to be patient, but we're not going to lower the standard from the pulpit. Never. And every elder is going to maintain the same standard because we have an answerable to God to present to Him one day a church which is like Paul said, a pure virgin for Jesus Christ. I often think of the story of Abraham's servant who went to Mesopotamia to get a bride for Isaac. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit who has gone into the world to get a bride for Jesus. And I think of Abraham's servant bringing Rebecca on that camel. Long journey, I don't know how many weeks and months it took. And I think all the time Rebecca must have been asking him, Abraham said, tell me more about Isaac, tell me more about Isaac. And she was not going to be saying, hey, what type of clothes can I get? Or I don't think she was worried about that. No, I, I see that as a picture of a bride who is wanting to know more about, what's my bridegroom like? Do you go to the Holy Spirit and ask him, show me what Jesus is like? That's my constant prayer, even now. I say, Lord, show me something in Jesus' 30 years in Nazareth, how he lived. I want to live like that. I don't mean physically. I mean his attitude to temptation particularly. His attitude to people who irritated him, etc. And the cheerful, happy way he was. See, one of the things the Lord showed, the Holy Spirit showed me was in all those 30 years that Jesus, when Jesus was in the house with four brothers and two sisters who nagged him every day. He was never in a bad I said, wonderful. And I said, Lord, can you make me like that? That no matter how other people in the world nag me or trouble me, I will never be in a bad mood. No matter what happens in the house or outside the home or something goes wrong or I lost some money or things didn't go the way I expected, I will not be in a bad mood. It's one of the things God showed me and I you know, if God could do it for Jesus, He can do it for me. That's my faith, the Holy Spirit that dwelt in Jesus' earthly body is the one that dwells in me. And you must have that passion to become more and more like Him, to press on to perfection. And thus we can lead other people also, and thus be a pure bride for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word that guides and leads us. Help us, we pray, to understand these truths in the spirit, not according to the letter. Not to bring condemnation, but to bring encouragement to everyone who hears. Bless this church mightily.
they will stand true to his convictions until he will return from heaven. And that it will produce others who go out from here with the same passion to build other churches in other places. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.